We're living through a time when, despite all of our pretending in culture, in media, and in law, it increasingly seems as if might makes right. As Americans, we've got a constitution that we're proud of, but on so many of the key issues, our constitution and its guarantees and protections seem to evaporate. When our constitution is silent, Supreme Court justices spring into action to creatively furnish cultural mores or to supply new rights that they discovered in emanations from the written text. This sort of thing takes sophistication, of course. Most Americans understand this to be what it is, raw judicial power, rule by conjecture and innuendo. What Congress won't do and what Americans won't vote for judges can simply impose. This plays out nowhere more clearly than with the human right to life. We have a constitutional right to life, and yet, if someone wants to void that right, we simply call the situation complex, and that right vanishes in the form of abortion, euthanasia, suicide by physician, take your pick. We've got to recover a sense in America of what's true, what's fundamental, and what's right. We're joined today by Bill Saunders, an international human rights scholar who has devoted his life to recovering first principles. Bill Saunders is a law fellow with the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America, where he is also professor and director of the program in human rights in the School of Arts and Sciences and co-director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Columbus School of Law. Bill also serves as chair of the Religious Liberties Practice Group of the Federalist Society. And before joining the Catholic University of America, Bill served as senior counsel with Americans United for Life for a decade. We're thrilled to be joined by Bill Saunders today. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and we're coming to you from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. We're thrilled to be joined by an alum of Americans United for Life and a great human rights leader, Bill Saunders. Bill, it's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Very happy to be with you. And of course, we've also got Noah Brandt. How you doing, Noah? Tom, I'm great. I uh, hope you're doing well as well. And it's just, it's so fun to speak to Bill, right? It's like, it's what someone who uh, who worked at America's United for Life, it shows the impact that we can have because Bill is doing amazing things. And uh, this book he's, he's worked on is just absolutely fantastic. Yeah, we're going to talk more in a few minutes about this great book, Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights. But first, we got to get back into, into some of the good stuff here. Bill, we want to hear about your background and, and how you came to work for uh, pro-life causes, um, but also international human rights. What led you to this? Well, um, I, I was a lawyer at a law school looking for where to find my vocation, what, what kind of I felt I was called to do. And... Um, I actually heard uh, several times John Paul II uh, talk about, this was in the mid-90s, he, he had a, a great document called The Gospel of Life, and it was, it was all about, well, we need to build a culture of life, um, and it had a big impact on me, and around the same time, I started working at a human rights organization, and I was working on uh, various things, but I particularly when somebody who was interested in religious liberty came into the office, they were sent my way. And I worked one day, a bishop from Sudan came into the office. Now this was, like I say, back in the late nineties. And at that time, uh, uh, Sudan was undergoing a civil war and there was genocide and um, um, chattel slavery. So literally taking people you know, killing their, killing the men, taking the women and the little children in, in slavery. So <clears throat> this bishop wanted help, and I worked with him. I created an NGO, actually, and we, we worked in, in Sudan delivering relief, uh, documenting the atrocities, and then lobbying in Washington to make this part of uh, something the American government paid attention to. So... <clears throat> Sometimes people ask me, well, 
what's the connection with that to the pro-life uh, movement? And I, I think it's just about as clear as anything could be. Uh, when you fight genocide, you're fighting the killing of innocent people. When you fight slavery, you're fighting against the treating uh, innocent people like they're, they're worse than animals. When you fight for the pro-life cause, you're fighting for the dignity of a human being who is being deprived of their life for no reason. So that's how I, all these things to me tie together, uh, and that's why, uh, as you said in the intro, I'm a human rights lawyer. You know, it's incredible, I think, too, you know, your work in Sudan, as an example, people, you know, it's thrown around sometimes, right, that there are problems in the world. We know of that, you know, in the, in the sense of, you know, great organizations. I think of a group like Charity Water, right, which exists to build, you know, freshwater wells in communities uh, around the world that, that need, you know, access to clean drinking water. Uh, a thing that's so basic, so fundamental that we take for granted that you can just turn on the tap and get that. Uh, but in so many places you can't. And I think, you know, your work in Sudan highlights another aspect of that, right, which is the idea, you know, we're talking so much in the United States right now about issues of, of justice, of racial justice, of social harmony, um, but there's that fact, right, that, you know, that human trafficking uh, and, and, you know, outright slavery is a reality globally still, yeah. right? I mean, I saw that recently. I stopped in, uh, you know, Maryland House off of I-95, and there are signs right in Maryland House that have a, a phone number to report suspected human trafficking, which was a wake-up call for me. I don't think I've seen that before. I don't know if it's been there. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, there's a fundamental, the fundamental point is <clears throat> that every human being is uh, precious or equal or however you want to say it. So you can't treat, you must respect the dignity and life of a human being. You can't take it arbitrarily. You can't make them into slaves and you can't kill them. Um, and to me, there's no difference in principle between genocide and abortion. It's the same thing. It's the killing of an innocent person arbitrarily. And uh, in human rights law, the, one of the principles in all the documents is no one shall be arbitrarily deprived mm. of their life. And <clears throat> arbitrary means at the whim of another person. It doesn't, I mean, <laughs> you know... Uh, so, to me, uh, an innocent person cannot be deprived of their life through abortion. It's always unjust. So, Bill, that, that's amazing, and your work in Sudan is uh, is something else, and I think something that a lot of people in America wouldn't think about, right? That there is slavery in the classic sense, right? And in the, in the way that we would think about slavery in the history books, that is happening in other places across the world. Uh, tell us about the other end of that spectrum. Tell us about your work at Americans United for Life, uh, the, the time period that you worked here, and uh, sort of what, what were you spearheading during that time? Well, uh, I worked at Americans United for Life from, uh, um, I don't know the exact dates, but from, uh, I, I started Catholic U about four years ago, so 10 years before that I was at I was at Americans United for Life, and we were working on all kinds of issues like uh, I imagine AUL is still working on, like we were working internationally, we were working particularly with people in, in Central and South America to uphold the right to life because that is the prime target of the pro-abortion forces because in general it's a pro-life part of the world and the more inroads they can make then they can start to make the argument that there's an international right to uh, abortion under international law. But we worked, of course, domestically on everything from, you know, the march, uh, you know, collaborating and working with the March for Life to litigation in the courts on all kinds of cases, state law initiatives. You know, we designed state laws and implemented state laws and then defended in court state laws. And, of course, we always... Uh, we're up against uh, the uh, uh, kind of ridiculous jurisprudence on abortion that uh, <clears throat> began with Roe v. Wade and still plagues us. So a lot of what you guys are doing today, although you may have some new new ideas and new approaches, and I, I'm sure you do. That's amazing. You know, you're the third sort of alumni of American Center for Life that we've spoken to. We've spoken to uh, 
Pat Truman in the past and to Jack Gorby. Uh, and now the, the, these gentlemen, I think, were working at AUL even long before you were there. But did, did you get to interact with those guys at all while you were here? Well, not while I was not while I was at AUL. But Pat Truman, for instance, I do, uh, and I he and I had worked worked together. His post AUL and my pre AUL, and uh, he's a very close friend. And in fact, you know, he heads up an organization against human trafficking now. So and and he it was great uh, help to me to be you know to be able to discuss things with him and learn from him so there there was a continuity but not literally uh, although i would you know i would talk things over with pat when i was at aul so yeah you know i want to focus too for a minute on the the latin american issue and the international expansion threat i think you're rightly pointing out that you know just as we spoke about in the introduction that you know in the united states context we've got a culture where you know if the the people if the demos right doesn't vote democratically uh, for something that sort of the power elite thinks should happen, as was the case with uh, abortion and as the case with uh, other social issues more recently, the judiciary just seems to step in and impose it. Um, and, you know, so the, the threat of expansion kind of uh, not from below, not from the people, but from the top down is a, is a real one. And I think, you know, when we see in Latin America in particular, I'm remembering, you know, it was, uh, I think, only a couple months ago um, that after Argentina um, you know, legalized at least certain forms of abortion. There was a tragic story that came out of, uh, of a woman, uh, Maria Del Val, I think was her name, uh, who was a, an activist, a pro-abortion activist who was fighting for legalization. Uh, and she died following complications from a, you know, then subsequent to the decision, legal uh, chemical abortion, you know, or abortion pill. Uh, and, you know, this was the, the first recorded death after the passage of that, that law, I think, you know, late last year. Uh, so this is an example. I know Noah, we've spoken about with Katie Glenn many times. Um, Live Action does great work on this. And, and Bill, I'm sure you've been following this as well. But this is one of the situations where it's like you can make something legal, but legal doesn't make it safe. And even when it comes to something like an abortion pill, uh, this is not an aspirin, right? These are, these are fundamentally risky things to partake in. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, again, as I hope people realize, abortion is not a solution for any problem. One of the big problems in Latin America is inadequate health care, access to clean water, access to doctors, you know, ro a, a good enough roads so people can get to uh, medical care when they need it. That's what you should do. Uh, you know, legalizing abortion is no solution to any. I mean, it, it, it reminds me too. Tom, so, of a conversation with Obianju from Culture Life Africa, talking about uh, you know just the intense sort of ideological colonialism that some of these pro-abortion American NGOs, like these American you know, quote-unquote charitable groups, push on Africa and South America and other you know countries that might be considered third world or, or less wealthy than us of this extreme abortion agenda. And like Bill said, you know, it's like our charitable dollars can go to really improving people's lives and not trying to give them the, the one thing that they don't need and won't help them, which is abortion. No, that's right. That's right. I mean, it's, it's sort of, you know, you think if you were to zoom out or, or go to different time periods, you know, some of the places that, you know, the same countries that, you know, charity water might be operating in where they're putting in that well for clean drinking water because mm -hmm. that's what the community needs and then you've got something like the Gates Foundation swooping in and saying, you know, good news, we're bringing, you know, new forms of contraception because that's that's what you need, right? That's what they've decided you need. It's like, no, they literally need wow. to be able to eat and drink. I mean, it's we're talking about basic right. priorities. Exactly. And if you want to go one step above, right, you know, there, there are charities that give people cell phones, right, or put up cell phone towers or, or satellites, you know, for so people can be connected to the to, to loved ones and connected to the economy. Uh, and it's, but no, right. What, what these, what Planned Parenthood wants to do is uh, expand. They want to create new customers for their business, which is abortion. So Bill, before we shift gears and, and talk more about your current work and, and your, uh, your recent book, 
I want to talk just a little bit more on the international front. You've you've lectured um, and been published in and traveled to so many places. I mean, true, truly an international scope uh, in in Europe and places like Italy and Germany and Poland. Um, but then you know also in in Mexico and Qatar, Malaysia, the Philippines, all over the place. Uh, Hong Kong. What has led to this this really impactful and wide ranging um, career of yours? Well. Uh you know, I, I do think that I'm uh, kind of have a calling to do what I'm doing. And I think, uh, you know, uh, solidarity, uh, kind of linking arms. I mean, you guys know working in Washington, D.C. coalitions is the key to getting stuff done. You have to work with people that you don't agree with on everything to get to get laws passed. And so I, I've always been when I first got involved in human rights, uh, work. It was clear to me, first of all, the fundamental point, anybody listening, get this one point. There is no international right to abortion that exists in any binding legal document. So when you hear this claim, it's preposterous. But I saw it being made all the time as I was doing human rights work. And it's a very subtle strategy well, there's two ways they could do it, uh, the pro-abortion people could do it. They could uh, uh, create a treaty that countries ratify and then they're bound by the treaty. And they, they may try to do that in the future, but what they've been trying to do for, since the Cairo Conference on Population and Development in 1994 is to create an argument there's a customary international law right to abortion. And all that means is that countries recognize, even though it's not in a treaty, a right to abortion. And it's, I don't want to go into the, you know, too much into the technical legal part of it, but one part is that's supposed to be, historically, the customary international law depended on unanimity. So that if the countries all agreed to it, then the, you know, all you're doing is recognizing that they already agree to this thing. That's why it's called a custom. And that argument's been tried in places like Europe in the ABC versus Ireland case, which I was one of the attorneys uh, involved in that case, along with Pat Truman, by the way. And uh, there was the poor abortion people arguing there was a customary inter, uh, right to abortion in Europe. But all you had to do was point to the fact that at that time, Malta didn't recognize abortion, Poland didn't recognize abortion, Ireland didn't recognize abortion. So hence, again, the importance of the South American and Central American and African and other places that are pro-life. Just their existence defeats this argument. But it, you know, there's that's the legal analysis, but politically, you know, there's this tr effort to convince people that there's this human right to abortion uh, by all these pro-abortion groups, and that's more subtle and difficult to combat. So I was always been working internationally because we all stand together, or we're all going to fall separately. I mean, they they each country they can get on the pro-abortion side is another uh, significant. Uh, threat to pro-life people everywhere. And I just mentioned one other thing. In some previous cases, the Supreme Court has never said that the U.S. is bound by custom, uh, uh, bound by, uh, but they've said we look to what other countries do to inform our own understanding, um, which means, look, you, it's conceivable that Roe v. Wade is overturned, and the next day the pro-aborts go into court and say, well, that's true under, you know, about what Rose overturned, but there's an international right to abortion, which is developed through custom, and the U.S. follows this because they follow customary international law, so now impose that on the people. So that's kind of what's driven me. Uh, I, hey, I just Bill, think can, this... Can you explain briefly, too, what you mean when it just developed by custom? You know, I think that that's, that's a term that maybe some non-lawyers aren't very familiar well, with. Well, all it means is how do nations interact with each other? So you you look at just the nations of the world. Do they... So you couldn't argue that all countries observe, uh, follow, uh, permit abortion because we know some don't, like some in Latin America, some in Europe, some in Africa. But the argument is that nonetheless there's a custom recognizing abortion. And, in, and so... In other words, that the nations all recognize it. So it's not written down in a treaty. And a treaty is just like a contract anybody listening to. 
if you rent an apartment and you sign a document and the landlord signs a document, you're both bound by it. That's, that's what a treaty is. So there's no treaty creating abortion, but the argument is that since all the countries of the world really permit abortion, it exists by custom. Um, it's kind of a circular argument. It's a very powerful argument. Uh, in fact, the Constitutional Court in Colombia, when it, it had a pro-abortion ruling in uh, 2004, and, um, and again, it didn't say it was bound by custom, but it observed that there were all these international statements and different things saying abortion was a human right. So it's kind of a tricky thing that pro-abortion people and dishonest judges can use. That's why it's dangerous. And it's important, too, I think, exactly as you're pointing out, you know, Clark Forsyth, uh, among others, has done such important work in in highlighting and continually underscoring the unsettled nature of Roe, right, as precedent in the United States context. But, you know, if we get to a point where Roe is reversed, the issues return to the states, uh, it's left sort of unresolved in that way, you're still, fund you know, culturally, you're still in a situation where uh, there's a lot of fluidity there, there's a lot of uncertainty, states might do different things, but exactly as you say, Bill, you know, because we're connected, you know, globally, um, the news is instant now with the internet, um, there's there's no way to escape it. It's, it's like these things have to be resolved, I think, um, fundamentally, foundationally, both in culture and in law, and realizing the interplay between those two. Um, you know, Ryan Anderson has, has pointed out, you know, that kind of more classical formulation that you hear of, you know, um, you know, politics is downstream of culture. You know, he says he prefers that metaphor that, you know, you know, politics and culture are two shores and, and the water flows between them equally. They influence one another. So it's not one always leading in one direction. Um, things lead in both 100%. directions. Yeah, I agree with that 100 percent. The two, they they kind of mutually reinforce. They interact together. Uh, it's like a, a wheel and water. The two are together. It, you can't separate them. Um, a culture that legalizes abortion, uh, I mean, a legally hurts the culture of life, and the culture, you know, that uh, doesn't uh, appreciate life will lead to laws that don't respect life. So that's why I particularly like the language of building a culture of life. It's not just to be anti-abortion, which is the fundamental first step, because uh, abortion is a violation of the most basic human rights, so you have to oppose that. But to create a pro-life culture is much, much, much more than that. And of course, uh, many pro-life people are doing many things like uh, pregnancy centers and other things, but we need to you know, get it in, and people are doing it, putting it in uh, movies and books and things like that, but we need to create a culture of life, and we need to value the life of each person. I mean, that's what it comes down to, and we just need to create an attitude uh, that we really do value the life of each person, and if, you know, we want to to help them. I mean, it's part of being in a, in a you know, in a society together. That's right, yeah, and, and the ability to not look away, right? There's so many things that can distract us that can lead us to, to pretend that we're too busy to be concerned with our neighbors or with our, our family even. Um, and you know, even if, even if things do come to pass in the years to come internationally where these arguments are made, say Roe is reversed, and say that folks then say, well, there's the, these customs, there's these conventions, um, you know, then you, you look at, at leaders of the past like William Wilberforce you know, in a situation where uh, something like the evil of slavery was so widespread, so international in many respects, and you, you still say, you know, nonetheless, we have to point to uh, the victims of this, the, per the perpetrators of this, and speak to the conscience, right? So there's always there's always reason for hope in this. Um, Absolutely. And I think that Absolutely. leads to, Bill, your, your current work with the Catholic University of America. I know you, you're affiliated both with the, the law school at Catholic University, um, but also with the, the School of, uh, of Arts and Letters, um, in particular with the Institute on Human Ecology. So I'm wondering if you can describe a little bit about that affiliation, you know, uh, what you teach there, um, wh what you write about there? Well, um, I uh, came aboard at Catholic University, like I say, about four years ago to create a program in human rights from the Catholic perspective. Now, I will say, you know, uh, for non-Catholics listening, that's very similar to from the Christian perspective. 
uh, it just looks uh, particularly to people like John Paul II, who was the great pro-life pope who wrote Evangelium Vitae and used the term culture of life. But, and that, you know, builds on all my experience all these years in kind of human rights, but also my deep conviction that the the pro-life movement and uh, religious freedom, again, those are fundamental human rights. They're not just kind of eccentricities of some people in society. I mean, you can't have human rights. There's, it's incoherent if you can kill innocent people and if you can deny people their, their kind of basic conscience or religious freedom to decide how to live their lives. Uh, and again, John Paul II calls the right to life the first right, and he calls religious freedom the first freedom. And, uh, and of course, many Protestant and non, you know, the AUL exists to, to uh, convince uh, or to speak to people of goodwill. So, you know, that's not a sectarian argument. I think you can even be an atheist and understand that nobody is safe unless, you know, the most defenseless are protected and that nobody can live their real life if their, if their convictions, their conscience is uh, overtrodden by the state. Um, so anyway, so I was brought on board to work, create this human rights program and um, what I just said about religious liberty helps explain why I'm the co-director of the center at the law school at Catholic U. And we created a Master of Arts in Human Rights, which um, I think is unique uh, because it looks at it from the Catholic perspective. Unfortunately, many human rights programs around the country um, either don't say anything about the kind of issues I've been talking about or are even disposed to pretend like they are human rights. And also, I just think uh, the richness of some of the things people like John Paul II wrote uh, would reward any reader. I mean, John Paul II, you know, proposed things to people of goodwill. So I think anybody listening to this who is not a Catholic uh, would profit, whether they're a Christian or not, from reading from what he says. And I think Catholics who haven't read it ought to reread it. So we created this Master of Arts designed to kind of help people understand human rights from uh, multiple perspectives, law, uh, philosophy, theology, political science, um, and to then be able to go out into the public square and to enter into the conversation about rights with a deeper understanding and with a, a kind of clear thinking about it because most of the conversation I observe in the public square is uh, incoherent or simply shouting at people. Um, you know, so we don't want that. I mean, what we want is a conversation. I mean, we're trying to persuade, you know. Um, Agreed. <laughs> and that's really, that's really, I think, what everybody right. should want. But uh, some forces in society don't want that. We, and, you know, and, and there are folks who can, who can be reasoned with and who can persuade, right? Yeah. You know, I think it's like uh, on the internet, you know, I especially think on Twitter, you know, you, you have these, these loud voices of people. Uh, sort of shouting the nonsense, like you said, Bill, who aren't interested in the conversation, uh, but there really is a broad swath of Americans who uh, maybe just haven't had the time or resources to think intensely about this stuff and are ready to reason with it. Yeah, you know, I, I would just say <clears throat> I agree with you, and in fact, I'm an example of what you just said, because I was not always pro-life. Now, I was never kind of pro-abortion, but I was one of these people that sometimes uh, people deny they exist, which is people who just didn't pay much attention to the issue and kind of uh, thought, well, this is, you know, didn't realize how important it was and how essential it was. But I was persuaded, and I was persuaded also, not only by John Paul II, but by the Democratic governor of the state of Pennsylvania, uh, who was Robert Casey, and again, back in the mid-90s, and he was a pro-life Democrat. And uh, I went to a lecture he gave, ironically, or not ironically, but kind of appropriately, at Catholic University, and uh, he, his lecture just kind of made a sea change in my, my mind. I realized I had been kind of fed a lot of untruths about abortion in America that I had not critically looked at. But when you look at it, 
you know, America was becoming more pro-life, you know, before Roe, or was pro-life before Roe. It wasn't becoming pro-abortion. It wasn't pro-abortion. The more Americans have learned about science, the more they protected the unborn. And it just, uh, it just started to open my mind and lead me to question. And as I say, I was also starting to do human rights, and I was looking at the human rights documents, and one of the planks of them all is every person has the right to life. So anyway, I'm the kind of person that can be persuaded. And so there's millions of people out there that can be persuaded. That's so beautiful. You know, I think of something that uh, Governor Casey wrote about or spoke at one point. I forget where this was from, but but he said in the context of abortion, he said it's it's not ultimately so much a question of when life begins as a question of when love begins. You know, and the point he's making, right, is like we don't need to get bogged down. We don't need to convince you don't need to open up an embryology textbook and and agree, you know, with the science on this of, of human life. Just simply ask yourself sort of the, you know, the Carter Sneed, you know, Alistair McIntyre type questions of, you know, who who belongs in the circle of humanity? Who's a member of the human family? Uh, And if we can think about that, right, like that seems like the sort of thing that he stirred in you. Yeah, I agree. I I teach uh, also you're you're asking about some of the things, my teaching and stuff. I usually teach in Europe in the summer. And I I, uh, one of the lectures I usually give is about what I call the circle of protection. And, you know, if you understand what the law is really all about, it's, and what America is all about, it's about extending the protection of the law to more and more people, to putting more and more people inside that circle of protection under the principle of equal uh, equality under law. And uh, anyway, I just think of it, You know, I think of the way in in different periods of time when people were trying to protect themselves from barbarianism or whatever, what did they do? They formed a city, they built walls. So that's that's the circle of protection. You bring more people within that. You don't exclude people from it. That's never been what Western law or American law is about. It's not about excluding people. It's bringing more people under the protection of the law. As well put. So you know, I think with that, we can we can shift gears and talk about, you know, the great book where you're witnessing to some of this stuff uh, that you co-authored and edited uh, called Unborn Human Life and Fundamental Rights. We spoke about this briefly in the beginning of our conversation. You know, I'm, I'm curious, we're going to read some of the excerpts of this that, that we think are particularly powerful, Bill. But first, you know, just curious about uh, kind of how this book came to be. Well, it's, it, it's, it, it's interesting because... Uh, uh, as a friend of mine who is uh, one of the world's experts on uh, uh, euthanasia and assisted suicide, who's Professor Georgetown John Keown, was traveling, uh, talking about one of his books in South America and uh, encountered this uh, professor who um, was interested in the subject and in international aspects of it and John mentioned her to me and we got in touch with each other and the project was born out of that. She's a professor in Spain. She was uh, also teaches in Argentina. You know, there's a heavy influence of Spanish in Argentina. So she teaches in both places. But anyway, it grew out of that because we've just seen a drift uh, away from this fundamental protection, uh, fundamental legal principle of protection of the the innocent and the weak, and the, and so we wanted to kind of look about, look around the world. So this is really a comparative, in a sense, a comparative legal text, but it looks at the U.S. and countries in Europe and uh, Central and South America and North America. <clears throat> so we just wanted, and we thought the fundamental moving principle pushing in the wrong direction was the judiciary. Um, So I'm sure we'll talk in a minute about my chapter, but that's, I just, I mean, look, people have the right to govern themselves, and uh, no constitution that I've ever read in the United States says the judiciary has the right to tell people how to govern themselves on these fundamental issues. So 
anyway, we looked around the world and we found judiciaries in other countries doing some similar bad things. Yeah, t tell us, Bill, before we talk about your chapter specifically. So, you know, the book is sort of like an anthology series of a lot of different authors and contributors. Uh, tell us how you compiled that list of contributors and uh, maybe go over what what a few of them that that go, maybe go over besides your essay what a few of them cover because I I got to read a few of them I love the one concerning Peru uh, and there is a lot of interesting uh, facts and stories in there. Yeah, it, I I think it's fascinating uh, kind of resource because uh, it does look at at countries in South America. I mean, we looked at Argentina, Chile, Peru, other places. Central America, you know, like El Salvador. Uh, one important thing for people to be aware of is, again, what one of the engines of moving away from the right to life is judiciary, and that includes international judicial uh, organs. So, in 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 there's a treaty called the Inter-American Convention on Human Rights, and there's a court called the Inter-American Court on Human Rights, and uh, there was a decision by that court that was, I mean, it's, it's subject to debate as exactly how far it went, but despite a treaty that says, uh, that's very pro-life, is probably the most, in some ways, the most pro-life treaty in the world, uh, they said there was a, uh, a right to, uh, to destroy uh, embryos. And embryos, as everybody knows, is just little teeny, itty bitty human beings. Um, so the, the, the chapters help you understand how a court is, not only what's going on in a country, but how a court is driving things. Same thing in Europe. You have the European Court of Human Rights. And I mentioned this ABC versus Ireland case that Pat Truman and I were involved in. And that was an effort by pro-abortion people, as I said, to argue that under an idea of custom, there's a right to abortion. And, you know, they tried to convince the European court to do it. Now, the European court did not agree with that argument by them. But, in fact, it made a bad ruling because it kind of camel's nose under the tent. They, because of legal, uh, some cases in Ireland, they said that the Irish had recognized the right to abortion in some cases, and they had to put laws in place that made it available uh, rather than just theoretical. Um, so that I have a wonderful chapter by William Benchy, who is the one of the leading human rights lawyers in the world. He's an emeritus uh, professor, and now he retired from being a professor, and now he's a full-time barrister. But looking at that case and what's happened in Ireland and how the European court got involved. So I think what we did was, you know, if we had more time and resources, you know, we could have covered even more countries. The fact of the matter is the project took five years as it was uh, because we have, I think, 12 different authors. And we wanted to look at European countries, some of the important ones, um, uh, North American countries, because ironically, two of the three or four worst countries in the world on abortion are U.S. and Canada. Uh, Canada, through a bizarre uh, series of events, does not even have law on a, uh, about abortion, which allows it to be done freely. So two of the most permissive countries on abortion in the world are the U.S. and Canada. And then, you know, Central America, Mexico is a very important country, El Salvador, Honduras are very important countries, and then South America. It was very sad to see this this uh, decision or this vote in Argentina because Argentina has been a pretty strong pro-life country. But anyway, that's how we did it. We wanted to look, I mean, I wish we'd been able to do Asia and Africa. We couldn't, but we wanted to do Europe, North America, Central America, South America, and uh, those are the basic countries we cover. And Bill, let's shift gears to your chapter in particular. Your Yours is titled Judicial Interference in the Protection of Human Life in the United States, Actions and Consequences. So we'll talk about this uh, in depth here. I, I first want to read just a, a segment of this uh, that I think is great where you write, quote, 
any system of rights built upon the denial of the very cornerstone of the entire concept of human rights, that is, the right to life of each human being simply because that being is in existence, is built upon a basic falsehood about the human person and about the nature of society. You continue saying, such a system in its very roots denies the possibility of achieving the common good which is the primary legitimate aim of political legal authority. Hence, you say, when political authority fails in its obligation to protect life and thereby to create an essential condition for achieving the common good, all of society is imperiled. The unraveling, you say, of the rule of law and the undermining of mutual respect among citizens unfolds in myriad ways, some obvious and some subtle. I think this is particularly important, too, as this conversation about the common good has unfolded in recent times, you know, showing this interplay between, you know, I think as Americans, we so often think of our rights as individualistic, um, you know, our ability as autonomous agents, right? So there's that distinction between rights as individuals and our responsibilities as individuals. Um, and that's where maybe the common good kind of sits at that, that intersection, right? Helping mediate to say, well, what does it mean to have rights and responsibilities? And, and what is the common goods responsibility? Right. Uh, I, yeah, I agree 100%. Uh, as you know, in my program, this, the idea of rights without responsibilities is also incoherent. And it's not even reflected in the basic legal documents, although it is true that those documents, you know, put the emphasis on rights, the basic international documents. But of course, they grew out of World War II when rights had been trampled. So of course, and they were trying to protect human rights. So they, of course, they have an emphasis on them, but they recognize their responsibilities too. Uh, We're all in it together. um, And you can't achieve the common good uh, unless, again, or, you know, you can, if people aren't comfortable with the common good, again, equality under law, you know, basic, that's, that's what the rule of law means. It's, it's a beautiful principle because it means whether you're the, you know, the richest man in the world, or, you know, you're Bill Gates, or you're the poorest man or woman in the world, or child, you are equal under the law. Why? Simply because you're a human being. I just think that's the most basic principle. That, that is powerful. You know, another thing I really love about your essay, Bill, is uh, your comment on Justice Blackman, the author of Roe, and his sort of ignorance of the science. Uh, and you know, something I was talking to Clark Forsyth, our senior counsel, about the other day, is that, you know, right now the science is so stark, right, that the science behind Roe is so bunk. But it was also bunk back then. It's not like it was so opaque back then. Uh, you know, so you write, quote, however significantly, Justice Blackman in Roe failed to consider another discipline, that of basic embryology. If he had, it would have been clear that the embryo from the first day is a developing human being. If it had been recognized, Justice Blackman would have had to consider its status for purposes of personhood protection under the 14th Amendment. By avoiding the scientific facts about the beginning of human life, Justice Blackman was able to avoid the constitutional dilemma presented by that fact. Uh, Tell us about that. Tell us just how Justice Blackman uh, ignored the science and what it means when you take in the fact that uh, preborn humans are persons. You know, it's a a fascinating, I mean, at least for me as a lawyer, it's fascinating opinion because... It it's, seems to be very scholarly, it, but it isn't. It's, it's really a kind of, a, a, not smoke and mirrors, but he, he's, you know, he looks, he says at history, looks at philosophy, looks at legal history, and, but he, anyway, I think he gets a lot of those wrong. To me, it's clear that the purpose of his opinion is to present this is an issue on which there is no clarity and therefore which is when life begins and he says therefore the judiciary is in no uh, position to decide when life begins now I mean (laughs) okay then don't tell me it's in the Constitution 
if nobody knows when it is and nobody can tell, how can you tell me it's a fundamental right in the Constitution? Of course, she doesn't use the word fundamental right, but how can you say it's a constitutional right? So, you know, even it's just an incredible opinion right. if you look at it closely. I think all the reasoning falls apart. Um, and, of course, as you guys know, but probably some of your listeners don't, Roe, you know, a lot of people will say, well, Roe, that's not that unreasonable. A woman can have abortion in the first trimester, and then the state can limit it and even forbid it in the third trimester. Well, you know, there happens to be another case decided the same day called Doe v. Bolton. And that can, you can't understand Roe without Doe. What Doe says is a woman can have an abortion for any reason at all so long as the abortionist agrees with her. Now, I mean, that's what it comes down to. So any supposed limits or things you think are reasonable or whatever arguable in Roe is just <laughs> deprived of any force at all because Roe says there's always a health exception. So any restrictions are subject to a health exception. Doe tells you a health exception is anything, any factor of any kind that the woman says, uh, you know, disturbs her. And as long as one doctor, and who's the one doctor? The abortionist agrees. The abortionist is paid to do abortions. How many abortionists are going to tell a woman she can't have an abortion? So when you put Roland dough together, you can have an abortion at any time for any reason. Uh, that's the truth. You know, most Americans don't want to face the truth. Many of them don't realize the truth. We are one of the most extreme countries in the world on abortion. And that's due to Roe and Doe. One excerpt as well um, from a, a piece in the book um, from John Finnis. And John Finnis writes, the past 50 years have seen a collapse of the fundamental civility, have seen a collapse of fundamental civility and humanity. Finnis writes that widespread abandonment of the sense of obligation to give legal protection to the unborn in face of maternal and paternal desires to avert the inconvenience of caring for a child for years, even decades. This has involved, Finnis says, the abandonment of the principle that innocent human life is not to be made the object of an intent to extinguish it. That principle, Finnis says, has been a bright line, and abandoning that bright line has predictably led, or is leading fairly promptly, to the introduction of state-sanctioned or state-sponsored euthanasia and assisted suicide, even, Finnis says, for people who are not terminally ill and or not autonomous. So I think this speaks to, in a very important way, right, this thing where if we, if we started down this dark path uh, on so many issues that we can call under the umbrella of the culture of life, um, across the spectrum of life issues from the beginning stages to the end stages of, of any life, the spectrum, we started from a standpoint largely of saying we want to do certain things because we're free individuals and our freedom should include these things that can harm us or that can harm others. Uh, in the force of, uh, in the in the context of the child in the womb, and so we argue based upon autonomy, right? But now we're getting to this other end of the spectrum uh, through technology, through you know overdosing uh, in the case of assisted suicide, uh, where people aren't autonomous anymore, and yet the, the principle, the deadly principle um, of that culture of death mentality, is asserting itself, right? So it's it's proving on the one end that it's not really about autonomy, although we thought it was at the beginning, maybe. Um, it's, it's really about this larger question of, of who gets to extinguish life that Finnis is writing about, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. You know, when I was speaking a little bit earlier about the circle of protection idea of the law as a circle of protection, and we put more people within it, and nowadays we see certain people being pushed out of it. But the one thing you know is none of the powerful people are pushed out of it. You know, it's always the defenseless, the least powerful. Nobody where I live, I live in a you know, kind of wealthy neighborhood in Washington, D.C. None of those people are going to ever define themselves outside the circle of protection. But so it's the powerful 
deciding the powerless do not have protection. That's what he's talking about. The principle, the rule of law, the circle of protection is everybody's equal. <clears throat> so what's happened, for instance, in the Netherlands, where the euthanasia got started, uh, was now the doctors, and it's been admitted in surveys, they decide whether the life of the person in front of them is worth living. Uh, and if it's not, they often, I mean hundreds and hundreds of times, kill them without a request from the person to be killed. And supposedly the euthanasia regime in uh, the Netherlands was based on, you know, a, an autonomous person's request to have unbearable suffering. I mean, it, 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 as my friend again, John Keown, has, has demonstrated in his scholarship, you cannot contain the principle. There is a logical slippery slope and a practical slippery slope, and it will, in the end, it will be other people, some people deciding other people don't have the right to live. And I think too, you know, before we shift gears here, it's important to to speak about this common good issue just a bit more to put a cap on this. I think the, the debate's been unfolding recently, you know, over the past say two years. Um, you know, started really. Um, probably with the the Sarab Amari David French conversation that took place actually at the Catholic University of America, um, and it's unfolded in legal scholarship. Most recently, you know, uh, on, the, on the fringes with John Finnis's essay in First Things, where he's talking about uh, the Constitution and you know what protections it offers for the unborn. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. But you know, Bill, I'm wondering if you can walk us through this this common good idea. I think a lot of times when people hear this, um, it's not a phrase that's been used recently politically. Um, it's it's an ancient idea, right? And so when people hear it, I know this was something I was guilty of early on, which was I assumed common good, you know, was more or less the equivalent of the idea of the greatest good, right? Um, and I think for a lot of people, there's there's not a, a line there. It's it's sort of you know, isn't this consequentialist or isn't this utilitarian? Um, you know, and it's, and it's like, no, right. It's, it's, it's not the idea, you know, it's not a greatest good idea where the idea is, you know, maybe doing the most good for the greatest number of people, presumably at the expense of, of some minority of the good of some other people. Um, the common good, right. Is, is about you know, doing a good for the benefit and interest of all, um, say, say like passing a law that's good for a person as well as all persons in all times. Right. Yeah. And it's an ideal, you know, to which we orient ourselves it doesn't mean it, we always achieve it and in, or that it's not difficult to achieve but it, yeah it means we all share there's both individual goods and a kind of good across people and know the achievement and none of those detracts from any of the others uh, another way to look at it is Aristotle you know said how do we order our, our common life together we live together we're in a society you know, we have we have to have some way of being together. I mean, uh, you know, nobody is free to do what they like all the time in all circumstances. I mean, that's just a fundamental principle. I mean, get in your car and wherever you live, drive at whatever speed you want to down the main road, and you're going to be arrested and put in jail because there are rules that we agree to order our lives together. So the common good, in a sense, is the ordering, you know, of the common life. But particularly, uh, and there are, you know, people still disputing and discussing this, but philosophically, your common good and my common good go together. They don't detract from one or the other. Um, it's, a, it's an idea of human flourishing in a community that respects and recognizes the dignity of its members, and the freedom inherent in that, but realizes there are limits on freedom because we live together. That's right. Yeah, right. The common good helps us reconcile all those individualistic passions and desires, some disordered, some properly ordered. And it helps try to, to bring us to a place that says, you know, as you say, that common life, how can we achieve common life and civil society together? What are the things that are good for, for all of us? And I think uh, I'm, I'm going to continue to follow. I think we should continue to follow as that debate unfolds, um, which leads us to, I think, this uh, this issue of the 14th Amendment. And, you know, I know, Noah, you can you can share about the Lincoln proposal, which Americans United for Life had put out just recently. 
Yeah, you know, I, I, Bill is such an acclaimed legal scholar. I'd love to hear sort of what what your view is, Bill, on what the 14th Amendment has to say about the personhood of, of all Americans, but of preborn people specifically, and if a preborn person is covered under the 14th Amendment, what that might mean to, uh, for abortion. At, at America's United for Life, late in uh, 2020, we published, uh, along with Josh Craddock of the James Wilson Institute and uh, Chad Pecknold of Catholic University, a proposal called the Lincoln Proposal that would give that a president could do, a pro-life president, to sort of take uh, his role in interpreting the Constitution uh, to ensure that the agencies under his control uh, view preborn children as uh, people, as persons. But I wonder what you think about the 14th Amendment argument in general, and if you believe the 14th Amendment properly applied should protect uh, preborn people. Well, uh, first first principle, I think, for this discussion is, you know, people of goodwill disagree. Uh, there's no point in attacking people who think the 14th Amendment does protect unborn life and those who think it doesn't address that issue, in which case it is, as uh, Tom said before, it's left to the states to decide. I mean, again, just to remind our listeners, you know, we <laughs> sometimes it doesn't seem that way, but we live in a constitutional democracy marked by federalism, which means that supposedly things are decided more at the state level. And certainly where the federal government has not decided something, the states are free. So if there's no right to abortion in the Constitution, then the states would be free to consider it. The question of the 14th Amendment is, is it however the case that despite Roe, in fact, the 14th Amendment prohibits abortion? So uh, I think, as you can tell from, uh, I think Tom read an excerpt before, uh, or maybe you did, of what, you know, uh, Blackman was ducking in in Roe v. Wade. I think there is a, you know, there's a there's a a strong argument on different grounds, philosophically, legal legal history, and others otherwise, that uh, the unborn are protected under the Fourteenth Amendment. But you know, there are people of goodwill who think no, it just doesn't address that issue. It was it was addressed to the slavery question and making freed slaves into truly equal citizens and you know if you to read it beyond that is to give the judiciary too much power to interpret language in the constitution um i i think that um i i don't i you know i don't have a final kind of decision, uh, personal decision on it, I think there is a strong argument, as I say, that the 14th Amendment does protect the unborn, but I just, you know, this, the, the issue we face is that we're about as far from that as you could possibly be. We have a Supreme Court telling us that the Constitution and the 14th Amendment actually gives a right to abortion. So, and the what's the reason for that is because the Supreme Court has usurped power and the Congress has stood back and let them do it and the American people need to get the judiciary out of this business of telling us how to live our lives so I think uh, the first thing to do is uh, overturn Roe um, I mean I just think prudentially or not prudentially but realistically there's almost no chance the Supreme Court in the same opinion would will overturn Roe and say the 14th Amendment uh, prohibits abortion. Doesn't mean that's not a goal to, to work for, but I just think, you know, we have to be careful in the pro-life movement that we don't, we all want to get rid of abortion, which is exactly right. That's exactly the right motivation. But we need to realize that there are disagreements about how to do it, and, you know, we should respect each other. The more we snipe at each other, I mean, we can disagree with each other, and we should, and we should air out disagreements, and we should talk about them and try to understand this, uh, but we shouldn't attribute bad motives to people who we disagree with. 
No, that's right. I think uh, I'm thinking back on uh, Hadley Argus, a conversation we had with him uh, on life, liberty and law in the past. And, you know, he spoke about, you know, after Roe was handed down, I think it was uh, one of the the, the Buckley's, um, probably um, Senator Buckley from New York, uh, was at a dinner party with one of the pro-abortion justices and essentially laid out, as Hadley describes it, uh, you know, th- this is, uh, you know, lays out the, you know, what uh, Dr. David Predis has talked about as the Carnegie stages of human life, right? And the justice, you know, re- reportedly, you know, res- responded with something like, you know, where are you getting this from? You know, and, and Senator Buckley laughs. He says, where am I getting it from? I mean, this is, th- this wasn't presented to you and they had just never seen it. And so you know, they made this, uh, this decision in row not knowing, uh, apparently, or at least this one justice did. And so I think that that speaks to the importance, as you're saying, of airing out um, the conversation, the debate, because, you know, we make assumptions that um, everybody else knows what we know, right? And and that certainly may not be the case, especially when you're ensconced in the way that um, political leadership, like um, anybody from any of the three branches of government, would be in. Um, yeah, you know, I think if you, like, if you look at Roe, you can tell what's going on in Roe is legislating. What's wrong with that? Supreme Court's not a legislature. There's something called the Congress. So that's what they were trying to do. And, you know, I don't know who that justice was. And, and But, the, the, you know, the, the point is, again, what does the Constitution provide for? That's what you're supposed to apply. And then the rest you leave up to the Congress. But I do think, I do want to make sure that I just I say this. I do think we have the, the best Supreme Court in my lifetime. <clears throat> and I know that pro-life people have been disappointed with individual justices over the years. But I think it would be a terrible mistake to give up on the idea that we need to elect politicians who will appoint justices, who will, so far as we can determine, be motivated by the philosophy of applying the Constitution as it exists, not as they wish it were. Because I can tell you, look, read the Constitution, and you show me any paragraph that says the Supreme Court, number one, is the final arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution, or that the Supreme Court has the power to decide these things. It has a very limited role under our Constitution, and we need judges with judicial philosophies that recognize that. So I, I think pro-life Americans should be continue to work hard for that, while they also work hard to pass state laws and get them into the court system and you know give judges the opportunity to start to cut back on Roe and ultimately overturn it. That's so right. You know, I think as we're coming to a close, I, I want to underscore that in particular that, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court and the, the fight over it um, is so vital. And, you know, that's really what we're trying to speak to uh, in, you know, Americans in it for Life releasing this Lincoln proposal is this recognition that, you know, as important as this, the, the court is in so many ways, it isn't the center of American life. It shouldn't be. Uh, and that constitutional interpretive authority exists for the president of the United States as much as it does for the justices, as much as it does for Congress. And, you know, this this idea of the circle of humanity uh, or, you know, the, the sort of legal walls that can protect members of the human family. You know, we spoke to that in the Lincoln proposal. And I'm just going to read that uh, for a minute regarding the 14th Amendment. The Lincoln proposal says that the story of our Constitution and the 14th Amendment in particular has been the story of extending the protection of fundamental legal rights to more and more classes of persons. As you were saying earlier, Bill, that we're always including more. And it goes on to say, including African-Americans, women, Native Americans, resident and non-resident aliens, the developmentally disabled and illegitimate children, all through the 14th Amendment interpretation. In every case, uh, the Lincoln proposal says, the affirmation of constitutional guarantees for these classes of persons was based on their mere status as human beings within the Constitution's juridical reach. Right? So it's making this point that in the expansion of protections for new classes based upon the principle put in the 14th Amendment, it's included all these groups except for our youngest members, right, of the human family. And so, you know, whatever happens in terms of interpretation or in terms of uh, enforcement uh, through any of the three branches, 
Um, you know, we can look at these things just from a basic kind of logic perspective and figure out how do we how do we get back to a position of of what's right and good and true and fundamental, um, like like so much that you've been advocating for, Bill, across your career. So, um, you know, thank you for engaging these questions and continuing to be a thoughtful scholar on them. Thank you. I love being with you. So, Bill, something we do every show to conclude is our shot of gratitude. We just share something that we are grateful for. These could be serious, but they can also be lighthearted or a mix of both. Uh, so I'm going to put Noah on the spot first and, and ask Noah, what is something that you are grateful for? Uh, well, thanks, Tom. Yeah, well, mine, mine this week is a little is a little bit serious, you know, but I, I'm grateful for uh, for the nation of Israel. Uh, they are I have, a, you know, I'm Jewish by heritage and I have a lot of friends and family members who live there. And they are going through a challenging period uh, over the last uh, week or two. Over a thousand rockets have been fired uh, towards civilians, towards hospitals and schools and uh, apartment buildings, just trying to indiscriminately kill as many Jewish people as possible. And uh, so I'm thankful for Israel. I'm thankful for the, just the, the amazing technological progress that uh, Israel has made with the U.S.'s help just in the last 10 or 15 years with the Iron Dome uh, project that's been able to shoot uh, out out of the sky over ninety percent of the missiles coming down. Uh, but I pray for pray for peace uh, for uh, all sides of the conflict. And uh, but I'm I'm very grateful that Israel exists as a beacon of freedom and human rights in a in a tough part of the world. That's great, Bill. How about you? What's something you're grateful for? Well, I'll give you two. Plus the serious one uh, is I'm grateful for AUL. Um, you know, it's. Uh, it's very important to have uh, pro-life lawyers and and, uh, and their allies uh, fighting for the most fundamental human right. On the lighthearted side, uh, I went to the University of North Carolina as an undergraduate. I'm a big fan of their athletic teams, and anybody who, who knows Carolina knows they have a, a distinctive blue color. So as we said, uh, if God isn't a Tar Heel, why is the sky Carolina blue? So I'm... <laughs> So I'm glad that sky's Carolina blue. That's great. You know, we had a similar thing at, at Penn State. You know, our colors there are blue and white, so it's a similar idea. And uh, yeah, it's it's good. That's awesome. Um, it's cooler when Bill says it. No, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I love Penn State too. That's what I'm trying to make the point about. You know, I'm grateful for, uh, you know, here in D.C., there's a place I haven't visited yet, but I'm very much looking forward to this summer, which is the Franciscan Monastery of the Holy Land in America. And this is up, uh, you know, it's near Catholic University's campus, actually, in the, the Brookland neighborhood. And it's it's a, you know, full, like, you know, life-size, we'll say, um, Franciscan monastery um, that, that is a, I think it's, Bill, have you been there? Is yes. it a replica of the one in the Holy Land? Uh, they have a... Their garden uh, of Gethsemane is a replica, yeah. And the the church itself is a fantastic church. I don't know if it's a. I mean, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, the Franciscans actually they administer the holy sites uh, in the Holy Land. So it might be based on one of their churches, but their garden is based on uh, the the Garden of Gethsemane. That's incredible. So yeah, I'm very much looking forward to a, uh, a forward-looking shot of gratitude, looking forward to uh, visiting the Franciscan Monastery. All right. Well, Bill, thanks again so much for joining us today, and we look forward to uh, your continuing work and advocacy. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Glad to be with you guys. All right. If you enjoyed our conversation today with Bill Saunders of the Catholic University of America, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to Life, Liberty, and Law. Rate it and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered the show. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Bill or for us, just email us at life at AUL.org. I am Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.